Okay, so we're continuing on. Well, I read this really cool story about uh, 30-year-old friends who had a reunion and were discussing where they should go for dinner. Somebody suggested that they meet at the Glowing Embers restaurant because the waiters and waitresses there are young and beautiful. They all agreed. 15 years later, at 45 years of age, they met and discussed again where they should have dinner. Somebody suggested the Glowing Embers because the food and wine selection there are very good, and they all agreed. Another 15 years later, at 60 years of age, they once again discussed where to meet. Somebody suggested the Glowing Embers because you can eat there in peace and quiet, and the restaurant is smoke-free. They all agreed. Another 15 years later, at the age of 75, the group discussed again where they should meet. Somebody suggested that they meet at the Glowing Embers because the restaurant is physically accessible and they even have an elevator. And they all agreed. And finally, 15 years later, at the age of 90, the same group of friends discussed one more time where they should meet for dinner. Somebody suggested they should meet at the Glowing Embers because they'd never been there before. <laughs> and they all agreed. Our memory is something special. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Today we're going to break this verse down a bit and look at some of the details. And we're going to extract one principle. And we're going to look at one amazing way to apply this to our lives. And we're going to look at a biblical example of the Apostle Paul also applying it to his life. Again, Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. The word therefore means for that reason, for that reason. And in the previous verses, the Apostle Paul reminds us that God is rich in mercy, that he loved us even when we were dead, that he made us alive together with Christ, that he plans to show the exceeding riches of his grace. He reminds us that it was grace that saved us and not anything we have done, but rather it was a gift. And finally, in verse 10, Paul says, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and that we should walk in them. For those reasons, Paul says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. It's important to understand that Paul wants these Ephesians 
to remember that they were once Gentiles in the flesh. What does that even mean? According to one Bible dictionary, a Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. Genesis 12, 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The people who descended from Abram were given Israel and called Israelites or the Jewish people. And everyone else was called Gentiles. Gentiles is typically a word used in the Bible to discuss people who don't belong to Israel. Acts 14.1 Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. These Gentiles that Paul was referring to were second-generation Gentile believers, those who may not have experienced what it was like to be alienated socially and, more significantly, spiritually. The term uncircumcised would have been almost used as a derogatory remark, like seeing a homeless person on the street and calling him a bum or unclean. In John MacArthur's commentary, he lists five reasons Gentiles were considered outcasts for thousands of years. First, he says they were without Christ. They were without Christ, the Messiah. They had no savior and therefore had no destiny. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, a nation whose king was God himself. Gentiles were not a part of the covenant promises made by God. Things like land, priesthood, and eternal life. Because they had no promises from God, they had no hope. They had no hope. Gentiles had many gods, but by choice rejected the one true God. You can see why the Jews would have looked down on them. They essentially saw them as strangers who, on all accounts, were unclean or uncircumcised. They were outside of God and with no destiny. They were aliens, lacked a relationship with God by rejecting them, and therefore were hopeless. But notice Paul, when reminding these Ephesians of this, he doesn't use the word uncircumcision in a derogatory way but wants them to remember that circumcision is made in the flesh by hands, something that was made by men and holds no spiritual significance. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Real circumcision is of the heart. As one commentator said, physical circumcision used to be a token of the covenant, but its function ceased when redemption was accomplished in Christ. There's not just one kind of people in Jesus. There are many different kinds of people. Some people get upset about the word diversity. And some people still think because we might be different than someone else that there should exist a divide or a separation, such as the Jews did with the Gentiles. But clearly, Jesus 
does not view it that way. Jesus came for both the Jews and the Gentiles. I read an article called The Miracle of Unity in the Midst of Diversity, which said this, As I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman or a slave or a Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle, he writes. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants, and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, he said, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contently throughout the sermon. Where else can you find that mixture? Now, this is just my opinion. I have to say that so I don't get in trouble. But I think the main reason intelligent people struggle with diversity is not because they have an issue with there being many types of people. It's the groupings that really are the problem. I remember going to Liberty University and taking courses on sociology, which is the study of the development, structure, and functioning of human society, including social problems. And one of the things they do to test is group people and then study them. And they try to group you know, them based on things that are similar. If you're a person from the United States, then you are an American. If you are from Nevada, you are a Nevadan and an American. If you also descend from Africa, you are an African-American Nevadan. And then maybe in addition to this, you are a Republican, a Christian, a mother, a daughter, a granddaughter, a friend, a boss, an employee, and on and on the groups go. Well, the real problem is that it becomes really easy to isolate one or two of those groups that you dislike uh, in another person and neglect the others. For example, you might be a white conservative Christian man, and if you encounter a fringe feminist who hates all men, then to her, to, to her you're just a horrible person because you're in the man group. And if she also doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian, she will hate you even more. You can see how it sort of gets out of control quickly when how a, a person feels about someone else is based on their grouping and your likes or dislikes about that grouping. Now, traditionally, the groups were used, that were used were objective. Man and woman, this location or that location, tall or short. 
But now in modern day America, those groups are increasing and changing based on random feelings. And a person can move in and out of those groups anytime they want to. And you just have to try to keep up. But now you have a real issue of diversity. Because you could have a person who at one moment is a man in the man group, and then at another moment, that same person is in the woman group, and all the rules have changed. I don't want to get too far into it, but let me just say that diversity, based on groupings, can easily get messy when left up to sinful men. The best part of Christianity is it's not our differences, but rather our unity in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. And then notice Ephesians 2.12 That at that time, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, Paul says to these believers that at one point in time, when you were Gentiles, you were without Christ. And according to John fifteen five, which says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Why would Paul want anyone to remember that at one point in time, they did not have Jesus? Or that they were unable to do anything good? Why is that something people should even consider after receiving God's gift of salvation? Why remember what it was to be a heathen? A heathen, by the way, is defined as a person who doesn't belong to a widely held religion. In this case, someone who is not a Christian. And not only that, Paul points out that these Gentiles were at one time aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They, as one commentator said, had no rights of citizenship in his kingdom by reason of their birth. This word contrasts with the more intimate expression, members of God's household. He, Paul drives home the point that they should remember at one time they were not members of God's family, but that they were outsiders. They were outsiders. Mark 4, 11, And he, Jesus, said to them, to you, the believers, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. There was a point in time that these people did not know God and a point in time that they were not a part of God's family. There was a point in time that godly things did not make any sense to them. And for some reason, Paul thinks it's important to remember that they were not citizens. And because they were not citizens of the kingdom of God, at one time, they were strangers from the covenants of promise. Stranger means to be someone who does not know or with whom one is not familiar. We teach our children not to talk to strangers because we don't know them and we don't know what kind of person they are. We don't know what kind of group they belong to. We use the slogan stranger danger in this case. 
these Ephesians, Paul drives home, that they at one time were strangers or unknown to the covenants of promise. And a covenant is similar to a promise, usually between two or more people to do something or perform some type of action. I like what God, uh, GotQuestions.org said about a covenant, which was this. The concept of covenant is significant in the scriptures. In fact, the word testament is really another word for covenant. The Bible is comprised of two parts, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. Covenant was a well-known concept in ancient times, and covenants could be made between two equal parties or between a king and subjects. The king would promise certain protections, and the subjects would promise loyalty to the king. A covenant might be conditional or unconditional. Essentially, Paul was making the point that at one time these Ephesians were not entitled to the benefits accruing to those in the community of God's people. They were foreigners. As a result of these facts, non-believers, such as these Ephesians were at one time, such as each of us were at one time, were those who had no hope and were without God in the world. There are two basic types of hope. There's worldly hope and there is Christian hope. Worldly hope or secular hope is a subjective hope that may or may not have any solid base for what it expects and does not include God's will. I read one article called the top 10 things people want more of in life and work but can't seem to get or keep. Number one was happiness. People hope for happiness, but can't seem to figure out what they want to make themselves happy. Number two was money. People hope for money, but can't seem to get enough to accomplish the things that they want to do. Number three was freedom. People hope for freedom, but can't seem to live and work as they want to. Number four was peace. People hope for peace, but can't stop overwhelming themselves with tasks. Number five was joy. People hope for joy, but can't seem to find the right role or career that will provide it. Number six was balance. People hope for balance, but can't seem to get all that they want. Number seven was fulfillment. People hope for fulfillment, but can't seem to utilize their potential in the best way for themselves and others. Number eight was confidence. People hope for confidence, but can't seem to feel as though they have something to offer. And number nine was stability. People hope for stability, but can't seem to figure out what to do to keep afloat. And number 10 was passion. People hope for passion, but feel they can't do what they're passionate about and be successful. Notice that in the worldly type of hope, there is no certainty that it will be fulfilled. In many cases, it's motivated by selfishness. 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
The biblical definition of hope is having confidence in the receiving the promises God has made. It's not wishing upon a star that everything will happen the way that we want it to happen, but rather it's an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. The Bible says, Hebrews 6, 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Paul drives home the point that at one time Christians were without Christ. They were aliens from the kingdom of God and strangers from his promises, which left them void of hope and without God in this world. And he, Paul, wants them to remember these facts, not to feel bad about where they come from, but as a matter of perspective. Perspective is the art of drawing solid objects on a two-dimensional surface so as to give the right impression of their height, width, depth, and position in relation to each other when viewed from a particular point. I read an article called Being a Father Puts Things into Perspective. And it said this, Golf will be very different for Rory McIlroy in 2021. At the end of August 2020, McIlroy and his wife Erica became parents to a baby girl they named Poppy. They said she is the absolute love of our lives. Of course, having a baby changes everything, a fact that McElroy acknowledged in a recent interview. Before I had a family, golf was most important. And then once you have a family, golf is definitely not the most important. It's your family. They're by far the most important. I don't know, it just puts things in perspective, he said. I love golf and I enjoy it and it's my job. Whether I played on the tour or not, I'd still play the game of golf. But it's one of those where once you have a family, all your priorities change. But in a good way. In a very good way. That's what being a Christian is. Being a part of a family. Being a part of God's family. And Paul is saying, remember what it was like before the family. Remember what it was like not to have Jesus. To be aliens and not have any of the benefits or entitlements of being a part of God's family, of being a part of God's kingdom. Remember what it was like to have no real hope and to live in a world without God. Remember what it was like to be a Gentile. Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, But now... But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice the word but used to contrast what was just stated by Paul. You were a Gentile. You were segregated because of your unbelief. You were those outside of the family of God. You were the hopeless and the godless. Those who lived immoral lives, greedy swindlers, idolaters, revilers, drunkards and swindlers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice Paul moves from the tragedy of the non-believer to the joy of reconciliation in Christ. First believers are no longer separate from Christ, but are in Christ. Notice 
Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, Jesus. Paul reminds these Ephesians, just as he reminds us today, that we as Christians have a new identity in Christ. We are not who we used to be. Those who have trusted Jesus Christ and have been baptized into Christ means that we have left our old sinful ways and have embraced the new life, one that is in Christ. Mark eight thirty four, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Once we responded to the call of Jesus in our lives, through the Holy Spirit's prompting, we are baptized into God's family. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. I love what one article said, which was, when Jesus took our place on the cross, he suffered the punishment our sin deserves. His last words before he died were, it is finished. John nineteen thirty. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The question is, what exactly was finished on the cross? And the answer is God's plan of redemption. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sins. He paid for our rebellion and our transgressions. Those in the past, present, and future, he paid for them all. And notice, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were a stranger became a family member, most cherished and loved by God. You who were aliens became citizens of heaven, fully entitled to the benefits and privileges of citizenship. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has moved your position from heathen to saint, from sinner to saved, from hopeless to filled with the hope of God. That in him we will receive all that he has said his people would receive, including eternal life with him. Notice John 10, 28 through 30. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We have received a new account in Jesus. As one article explained, picking, choosing, and deciding which sins are trivial and which are the biggies is a completely human tendency. A young man once told me it's like a heavenly bank account. As long as I make more deposits than withdrawals, I'm in good shape. I shared the biblical reality with them, the writer says. The very first time he made a withdrawal, the account was emptied and closed forever. 
He thought that was a bit harsh, but I explained that I didn't make the rules. God did. And I shared this truth with him, not to depress him, but to make him aware and appreciative of God's mercy. If you are a believer, your account has been closed and a new one opened in Christ's name. You are wealthy, but you can't make another deposit or withdraw. As Christians, we just get the benefit of this new account, living off the interest. Or to put it another way, living off the blessing granted us by the blood of Jesus. Our first and only principle today is to remember your life before Christ, but live your life in Christ. Remember your life before Christ, but live your life in Christ. The overall idea for us as Christians today is to remember our lives before Christ. Where were we and what were we doing? What was our life like? Were we Gentiles who were treated poorly by those who were godly? Were we worldly people who made bad choices and lived our lives hoping for things that were more like wishes than real hope? And then we have to remember the point in time we made a commitment to God. The point in time everything changed. The point in time we accepted the sacrifice as Jesus Christ for our sins. And we have to recognize and live our lives after that in Christ as a new creation. We have to contrast the differences. We have to have the godly perspective of just what has happened in our lives, that we went from sinner to saint, and it was all by the glory of God. So now what? What are we supposed to do with this information? How are we supposed to apply that to our lives? Matthew ten thirty two. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. We all need to prepare our testimonies and we need to share them with both Christians, those in our Christian family and non-Christians, those who are outside of the family, those of all groups. There's a plethora of tools out there to assist you, such as one ministry called the Navigators who provide the handout that's out here on the table. You guys can pick one up to help you prepare your personal testimony, which I strongly encourage everybody do and share with somebody as soon as possible. In Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul shares his testimony before King Agrippa. And he follows a very simple Logical and clear outline, which was essentially before salvation, how he met Christ, and what his life was like after conversion. And I want to read that account for you right now. Notice Acts chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies, 
Now please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. One day, I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you and appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me, but God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone. From the least to the greatest, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth, and King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, 
I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. Simple, but powerful testimony. And I love how he ended. That his prayer is for them to know the love of God and to become Christians like him, except for the chains. There is power in sharing your testimony. There is power in how God has moved you from one point in time to another, before Christ, to another point in time after Christ, and everything that has taken place in between that process. And we need to remember that. I read about a homeless man's hymn that became a powerful testimony, which said this, in a cup of coffee at the Soul Cafe, Leonard Sweet tells the story of the making of a film by two Londoners. In 1971, they began to film street people. The film captured the daily rituals of the homeless, their trials and joys. Some were drunk, others mentally disturbed. Some were articulate and others intelligible, unintelligible. One of England's leading composers, Gavin Bryars, agreed to help with the audio aspects of the film. And during his work, he became aware of a constant undercurrent of sound that appeared whenever one certain homeless man was filmed. At first, the sound seemed like muttered gibberish, but after removing the background noise, Briars discovered the old man was singing. Briars learned that this beggar did not drink or socialize with others. The old man was alone, filthy, homeless, but he also had a sunny demeanor. What distinguished him from the others was his quiet singing. He would for hours sing the same thing over and over. The man's weak voice untrained, but it never wavered from pitch. He repeated the simple phrase of the song over and over. And one day at the office, the composer looped together the first 13 bars of the homeless man's song. Preparing to add orchestration to the piece, he left the loop running while he went downstairs for a cup of coffee. And when he returned, he found his fellow workers listening in subdued silence, and a few were even weeping. The old man's quiet, trembling voice had leaked from the recording room and transformed the office floor. Here's what he's saying. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. <clears throat> Jesus' blood hasn't failed me yet. <clears throat> There's one thing I know for he loves me so. Though not a Christian, Briars created and produced an accompaniment to this homeless man's song called um, Trust in Jesus. The result was a CD that got entitled Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. But the old man died before he heard it. I don't want us to die before someone hears our song. So remember where you came from, how you got here today, and where you're going, and share your testimony with somebody as soon as possible. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for bringing to light all that you have. You, you've provided us with everything we need to be saved. You have gone out of your way and demonstrated mercy and grace. You've plucked us from the evil and given us hope again. You've taken us from the darkness and shown us the light. 
It's my hope and prayer today, Lord, that each of us here today would open our hearts to that fact, that we wouldn't shy away from sharing what you've done for us with others, that you would help us to prepare and remember our testimonies, where we came from, and how through your grace, your son has transformed us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.